0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another podcast episode of Mysterious Headlines. Today, we're going to be breaking down some updates in the case of missing six-year-old Michael Vaughn. If you are not familiar with this case, I highly recommend you go back into my podcast archive. I have done several podcast episodes breaking down this case from the beginning with all the details So if you are new to this case, I highly recommend you go do that and then come back to this podcast episode. So you'll be kind of caught up with the context of all of this. But we're going to be talking about some updates. Last week on July 22nd, the Fruitland Police Department, who we know is the lead police department, gave a press conference. Now, we were expecting them to give a press conference on the 27th, which is um, actually tomorrow when I'm filming and recording this which will be the one year anniversary of Michael's disappearance. So we expected them to do a press conference on that day, but then they kind of, out of the blue um, and a little bit last minute, held a press conference on the 22nd. They stated that there were some um, reasons for doing them on the 22nd, that not all the people that they wanted to be there were gonna be able to be there on the 27th. So they chose to do it on the 22nd instead. So this press conference was held um, outside of the police department, it was not open to the public, but they did have media there as well as family. Brandy Neal, my, Michael's mother was there, Tyler Vaughn, Michael's mother was there, and um, Buggy, the which is the nickname for Michael's little sister was there, and then Bob Vaughn, who is Michael's grandfather. So I'm going to kind of walk you through reading through kind of what was said at the press conference. You can watch this in full online if you're curious. Um, it's on the KT KTVB YouTube channel. There's also some other YouTube channels that have it as well. But I'm going to kind of walk through what was said at this press conference and kind of stop at different points to talk about things. Now, this press conference was led by J.D. Huff, who is the... Um, Lead um, law enforcement officer for the Fruitland Police Department. He's kind of been the head from the beginning, so he's the one pretty much doing all the talking during this press conference. So, as I'm talking about this, everything here that I'm going to be saying is what JD Huff has said. Um, if when I do step back to kind of break down some things or explain some things, I'll Make sure that's clear so you know when I'm talking about what J.D. Huff said and then kind of my thoughts um, regarding some of the specifics of what was said. But I think this press conference was really interesting. Um, I mean, first of all, it's the first press conference we've had in like almost a year. Um, I mean, they gave a press conference after like a week or so maybe after Michael was... um, you know, Michael went missing, but there hasn't really been a press conference since. And there's been very little information that has come from Fruitland Police Department or the FBI. And so it's been hard to know where's this case really at? What's really happening? Like, is there any progress? And that's what a press conference is really good for is updating the community and the public where things are at. Have we progressed? Have we learned anything more? And so we're gonna kinda walk through this. So this is basically how the press conference starts. Um, So JD Huff says, Michael Joseph Vaughn was last seen at his residence on Southwest 9th Street at approximately 6.30 p.m. Tuesday, July 27th of 2021. Law enforcement first received the call by 911 at 7.21 p.m. and we began an immediate search of the area. And I should note that law enforcement across the country receives these types of calls every year. Numerous calls like this, we call them wander-offs, and they conclude, but after finding the child safely with friends or family, and clearly it's typically a breakdown in communication. So you need to know the first missing and endangered alert went out at 8.20 p.m. with different alerts to emails, phone calls, and text messages being issued to area residents until 11, 11.20 that night. So basically, JD Huff is saying, We get these somewhat often where there's like a miscommunication, a kid went with a friend and like forgot to tell mom and mom calls oh my son's missing and then a half an hour later finds out oh he went with his friend, they went to the pool, he's with friend and friend's mom, it's all good. So they get these cases somewhat often, but they're resolved rather quickly. They figure out, okay, it was a miscommunication. My child went with their friend and I didn't realize, or oh, my child's over at the neighbor's house. He didn't tell me he was going over to the neighbor's house, but okay, he's there, he's safe. This obviously is a different scenario. It wasn't resolved within 30 minutes. It was not a quick resolution. Michael is obviously still missing a year later. So he's saying that it wasn't until 8.20, nearly an hour later, after the 911 call was placed that they issued um an alert to people living in the area and those went out all the way until 11:20 at night um he goes on to talk about you know Michael's image getting out um into like the database the missing child database and the state of Idaho missing person clearinghouse national center for missing and exploited children um Then he says, the Fruitland Police Department, Payette Police and Payette County deputies and citizens searched through the night until support arrived the following morning. The ensuing response was immense. We had over 100 law enforcement officers from federal, state, and local agencies, including the FBI child abduction rapid deployment team, along with trained search teams, coverage on our small city of Fruitland. Our physical... Search efforts were conducted by experts from the Idaho Fish and Game, the Idaho Mountain Search and Rescue, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, both Fruitland and Sand Hollow Fire Departments, multiple law enforcement agencies, and coordinated citizen searches. The search included over 200 residential homes, properties including outbuildings, a septic tank, garbage cans, vehicles, irrigation ditches, and drain canals. Trained search teams and law enforcement, along with specialized canine teams, from across across the country searched over 3,000 acres of farm ground along with areas surrounding the city and out of the county. Sophisticated drones, boats, and sonar boats with canines, kayaks, paragliders. I would say that if we could have dammed the Snake River, we would have with the help of residences and businesses. We were able... Okay, so I'm going to pause there. So talking about the extensive search they did this is the night and the days following michael's disappearance the people they brought in the searches that they conducted scouring the area to try and get anything to try and find anything any evidence any anything that they could to try and find michael and they're saying if they could have damned the snake river they would have um I, I think I've mentioned this before in my other podcast episodes, but Fruitland, Idaho is like right, almost right on the border of Oregon, and it's really close. Um, it's like right there to the Snake River, um, which is a giant river that kind of flows um, through the Pacific Northwest, um, and it meets up with the Yakima River in um, the Tri-City area of Washington, Central Washington. And so it's a really, really big river. And he was saying that if they could have dammed the Snake River, that they would have. Um, But for whatever reason, like, I mean, obviously that's a big thing to, like, dam a river. And so, don't know all the um, complications with that. But clearly he's saying if they could have done that, they would have. So then moving on, he says, We were able to retrieve hours and hours of security camera video, and we continue to reference that video while working on our leads. So let's talk about since the disappearance of Michael. When I tell you our investigation has been intense and daily, I can assure you that it has been since the disappearance detectives and investigators across the country have logged tens of thousands of man hours to bring this case to conclusion. We've gathered an immense amount of data and continue to work through it with experts from several agencies We've applied for and searched over 27 search warrants, but that may seem low, but I'm telling you, we've also performed probably triple that in mutual consent type searches. So the search warrant and consent searches we, we've performed have yielded high volumes of data and search warrants are still being written today. The data requires expertise from law enforcement partners, and this takes a lot of time to decipher. We continue to use all our investigative resources to include that at the Idaho State Police and our friends at the FBI, further, the Idaho State Police and the FBI have assigned investigators to work specifically with the city of Fruitland Police Department on this case, and our partnership is healthy and strong. We continue to call upon the Idaho Mount search and rescue teams with our specialized canine units and we've received some recent leads that have put us out in the area again, searching more acreage and I can't thank them enough for what they've done for us. On a moment's notice, they're jumping and running in for us. Although unsuccessful with these searches, we can't stop and we appreciate the continued support from all our members. And I would tell you that the number of acres searched will continue to grow. So in our efforts to develop a detailed timeline of events Leading up to Michael's disappearance, we've processed over a thousand leads, so we've cleared many of these leads, but not all have been cleared because some require assistance from out of state, more investigators, and probably just time to work these things through to make sure we can bring each lead to a conclusion. This process is exhaustive and it takes a lot of time, and we believe someone out there will ultimately provide us with some information that will help us solve this case. It's important to note that as we continue to refine our timeline, we now believe that Michael disappeared in a smaller window of time, and that's probably between the airtime of 6.40 p.m. and 7 o'clock p.m. on the 27th. Earlier in the investigation, we needed assistance in identifying two vehicles, and two pedestrians that were seen in the area around the time of Michael's disappearance. We positively identified the blue Dodge Avenger we were looking for and the man that that we see that was jogging in the area, Though those have both been identified, vetted, and investigated to an end. The white Honda Pilot, 2016 to 2018 Honda Pilot that we have leaving the area at approximately that time We believe that it belongs to a resident, but we haven't quite been able to clear that and verify that. So it's kind of an outstanding for us. The man seen walking through the area of the splash pad at Crestview Park leading up to the time of Michael's disappearance has not come forward and has not been identified. The man is described as white male, adult, late 20s, early 30s. He was seen wearing black shorts, a white t-shirt with cut-off sleeves, dark-colored shoes, and a hat. I need to make it perfectly clear that he is not a suspect, but we need to talk to him so we can determine his whereabouts to see if he witnessed anything that would be helpful in this investigation. I plan on releasing a photograph of the individual in my Facebook posting later today, which was on the 22nd. So you'll have that picture. You need to understand this is a multifaceted investigation. So many leads are working. We're working many leads at the same time, Some leads are temporarily abandoned as priority leads come in, and that's happened to us on multiple occasions. It takes an intense effort and a lot of work to document all the leads that are coming in, and at the conclusion of this investigation, I'm hopeful we'll find the answers. It's important that our case is organized and very strong. So I will tell you, this is a criminal investigation. So with that, you need to know that the majority of our investigative efforts just cannot be made public at this time. As members of the community, we agonize with the family and we've dedicated our resources to bringing Michael home. We believe the continued distribution of this story will generate more attention and tips that can be investigated by our department and our partners. So anyone that has information regarding Michael's disappearance, I would ask you to please reach out to us no tidbit of information is too benign or too obscure it just helps us process the overall picture we appreciate the efforts of the community members of the media who keep this case at the forefront by promoting and sharing the story and we encourage all of you to continue sharing the official poster from the idaho missing persons clearinghouse then he goes on to talk about this new program that they're introducing which is called the homeward bound program Well, it's not a new program they're introducing, but it's a new partnership with this program called Homeward Bound. And um, basically, this program is going to get his missing person poster on big trucks that drive around the country. So he talks about that. I'm not going to go into the specifics of that. I don't feel like it's as important as some of this other stuff that's going to come up. So he spends a bit of time talking about that and how... His name's going to get out there. He reinforces, if you have tips, please contact us. Um, he gives like the Crime Stoppers number and the FBI website. The information leading to Michael's safe return has grown to $52,000. This fund has been maintained by the city of Fruitland. It's secure. This will remain in place until Michael comes home. I just ask you to continue to pray for him. Michael, for the strength for his family and the steadfast resolve for those who are working to bring him home. Thank you for standing firm with Michael's family and our continued law enforcement efforts. Then they go into the question period. So, he said, you would know I tell you that people like to deal in absolutes, and there's nothing about this case that is an absolute. So we'll continue to investigate all aspects and all avenues in this case. Because, so the question was... Sorry, I forgot to preface it. The question was, is this a strange, looked at as a stranger abduction or a, like, someone he knew? And he says, there are no absolutes about this case. Um, there's nothing about this case that isn't absolute. So we will continue to investigate all aspects and avenues in this case. And you know, as I've said before, the family continues to be extremely cooperative and working with our investigation. So then, um, he, someone asked a question again about the searching and he goes back to, due to the number of searches with trained teams at acreage it is searched. This is, um, why and without success, that is the reason why, we know there's a possibility or a higher probability of abduction that's led us to believe that. And he says, yes, we're looking into friends and family close to the Vons, and we're looking outside as well. And then someone asked a question about theories. One of the media personnel asked a question about theories and he said, yes, there's a number of theories. As a matter of fact, we've developed many theories throughout the weeks as well. And once we develop those theories, plausible situations, and we vigorously get after that. And so I certainly don't want to discourage any information that's coming into the Fruitland Police Department. Because these leads, we, he said now over a thousand leads... He said he thinks there's gonna be a tidbit of information that's gonna break the case. So he repeats that again, that no information is too small, that there's going to be something small that is going to break the case. And then he goes, he makes a statement again about our case needs to be organized and strong. And it's important that we hold that information close to the vest There will be time for public disclosure, and right now it just isn't, so that's the reason for our hesitancy to put out updates. We're working daily on this investigation. And someone asks, is there anything you can say about persons of interest in this case? And he says, I'm not really going to get too deep into persons of interest, but I'll tell you, there are multiple He said, I would tell you property, vehicles, electronic devices, everything you can think of, we would be searching, serving search warrants on. More than likely, we've served search warrants on them. Our day-to-day efforts start with an intelligence briefing. So then someone asked kind of more specifically, like, what does your day look like? He said, our day starts with an intelligence briefing first thing in the morning. We go over aspects of the case and current leads that we're working to try to develop new strategies. We pull in our partners from the FBI and Idaho State Police. We start with the direction for the day, and every day starts the same. But I'll tell you, it's been this way since the day Michael went missing. We do the same thing every day, and it's intense, so we're able to clear a lot of leads. That way, we're making a lot of progress. Working through the data, like we have been from the beginning, you know that's kind of where I'll leave. Um, Leave it for now. And someone asked, are there any similarities you can draw between um, other cases? And he said, the Summer Wells case, he said, we haven't been able to tie anything specifically to that case, but there are similarities. And then he basically thanked everybody again. There were no more questions. He thanked everybody and appreci- said again, no information is too small everything that any any information that people have that can be shared will be helpful in bringing this case to a close so i really feel like this press conference i feel like jd huff he was definitely saying any information is helpful and will help break this case anything small, big, doesn't matter, is important. I thought it was interesting that he said there's multiple persons of interest, but he of course wasn't gonna get into specifics of that. Um, He said that there are people in this case that are not cooperating, which is interesting. And I think most of us can kind of draw conclusions as to who that would be, that is not cooperating. If you've listened to my other podcast episodes, I think you know. But you know, he said there were people that were not cooperating, and he also um, said, you know, that they've done thousands of searches, they've conducted so many search warrants, and that they are working tirelessly every day. And although. On one hand, it doesn't seem like much information and it seems like, oh, they kind of just didn't talk about anything. I get that they can't give out sensitive information that would hinder the case. Um, And so this was what they were able to give out, that they're working tirelessly, that they've conducted thousands of searches, thousands of hours of searches. They've done numerous search warrants. They're processing leads every day. And they're doing everything that they can to try and find Michael. And they still cannot rule out the Honda Pilot, which is, like, bizarre to me that we are this far into the case. And yet they haven't been able to identify. They believe it's a resident. How can you not identify it? Like, you can't see, like, like you don't have a better photo that shows the license plate where you can run the license plate and identify it to the resident. I don't understand that. Um, that seems bizarre to me. So the Honda Pilot's still out there as a potential... They they don't know that it's necessarily involved, but they want to clear the person officially. So that's interesting. And then they did release this photo. Um, in the press conference, they said they were going to release it later that day, which they did. And it's a very grainy photo. I'm going to put it up on my Instagram and Twitter so you can go look at it after this podcast episode, but it's a very, very grainy photo, which, one, it's a photo from a video. They said it was a CCTV video by the splash pad they got. And then they just released a photo, and the photo is very grainy, and it's really bizarre because they're a police department, so they obviously have high-tech software to be able to make a photo more high-res, make it easier to see, and they haven't done that. And they also chose a weird part of the video to release. Like, it was a video, so they could have, A, just released the video as it was, or B, chose a different, like screenshot from the video to release and it's a side profile photo of this guy and so it's really hard like you can't see his face you like you just get like a kind of side behind profile view and it's really hard to see this person now once you go look at the photo you can let me know kind of what you think initially I thought, and a lot of people thought, that it was Tyler, Michael's dad. But the more that you kind of look at the photo and try and dissect the photo, I don't know that it's Tyler Vaughn. And then you ask the question of, well, why would they be be releasing it if it was Tyler Vaughn? And there's a whole theory behind, like, maybe they actually know who it is in the photo, but they want them to organically come forward. Or they have a hunch for who they think it could be but they want that person to actually come forward, or maybe they legitimately don't know who it is. But at first glance, it kind of looks like it could be Tyler Vaughn. If you've seen photos of Tyler and stuff, it looks similar to him. But the more that I've examined it, I don't think it could be Tyler. I, it might be a friend of his or something, but I don't think it's him. But you can look at the photo and kind of judge for yourself. I'll put it up on my Instagram And my Twitter, my Instagram is mysheadlinespod. Twitter is mysheadlines. You can put it, um, look at the photo there after I put it up here and see the photo and let me know what you think. Who do you think it could be? Like, and there's been some people trying to like trying to enhance the photo in certain ways. And when you enhance one part of the photo, then it kind of, on basic software, then it kind of. It makes other parts grainy, so it's hard to tell if the person if this person's wearing tall socks or has leg tattoos. Um there's some sort of emblem on the back of the shirt, but it's hard to tell. Um they're definitely doing something with their hand, either talking on the phone or going to put something in their ear. Maybe they're putting on a mask, maybe they're putting in an airpod, maybe they're whole talking on the phone. Um It's also unclear if they have, like, they might have a mask on or they might have some sort of facial hair. So many things are unclear. So it's bizarre to me that they released such a grainy photo and they're expecting the public to be like, oh, yeah, I know that person or oh, yeah, that's me or oh, that's my brother or whatever, and then come forward. So that seems bizarre that they would do that. Um, But you can be the judge. I have the photo up. You can go look at it. Let me know what you think. But moving on to the first public interview with Tyler and Brandy Neal. Now, as I have mentioned in previous podcast episodes, that Brandy Neal, the mother, she was out front and center from the very beginning. She was vocal. She was talking to lots of people. And Brandy Neal, apparently, which we still don't have a good timeline. We still don't have a consistent timeline on anything because the only timeline we ever got was from Brandy Neal who was supposedly at work all day. And that timeline changed about a million times and is still evolving. Police in the press conference said, They're putting together a timeline, but they're not, like, releasing an exact timeline. So, we still don't have an exact timeline. But from the beginning, Brandy was the one creating this narrative, if you will. And I hate to say narrative because it sounds like it was all contrived. And everybody is innocent until proven guilty. But Brandy, I say curated this narrative because she was at work all day. So, how does she really know what happened? She doesn't. She, you know, when she talks, oh, apparently this is what Michael or what Tyler told me happened in Michael's disappearance. But there's no confirmation on anything. Nothing's been validated or confirmed. So that's why it's been all up in the air. And that's why we've wanted Tyler to speak from the beginning. He was the one home all day. He would know exactly what happened. So let him tell it. Let's not have Brandy telling it. Let's let him tell it. And we've gotten so many excuses from the beginning from Tyler of why he didn't, or actually from brandy as to why Tyler didn't want to talk. Oh, he's, he's working so much trying to provide for the family so he doesn't want to talk. Oh, he's, he's camera shy. He doesn't want to talk. Oh, there's been a bunch of people that have been accusing him of this and that, so he doesn't want to talk. And to me, those are all pretty lame excuses. Your six-year-old son is missing. He's been missing almost a year. Get in front of the darn camera and speak. Say something. Plead for the world to find your missing son. Bring him home. Like, I'm sorry. You you don't get to sit back in a hidey hole when your six-year-old son is missing and refuse to say anything. Like, and there's no valid excuse. There really isn't. There is zero valid excuse. And I've been fed up with it from the beginning and so many of us have been fed up with this fact that he will not talk and so now he has finally spoken and we're gonna talk about it it's almost a year later and he has finally spoken sat down for his first interview now of course brandy was there next to him i think it could have been a very different interview if it was just him and not brandy but i don't know that we're ever going to get just him a separate from brandy I think Brandy's always going to be next to him in an interview. So we got that, which is at least a step forward. So we're going to talk about this interview. It's about um, an eight-ish minute interview. We're going to talk about this interview. Now, this interview was done um, KTVB, which is a local channel, news channel in Idaho that covered this case. It's done a few stories on this case, and so they were the ones that interviewed Brandy and Tyler for um, the one-year anniversary. So I'm going to kind of walk through what was said. Michael went missing nearly a year later. So this is, this is Brandy and Neil talking. Now, you can go watch the entire interview. It's really interesting to see their... Like their face and their body language and movements. I think it's very interesting and you can draw some conclusions from that. So it's on the KTVB YouTube channel. You can go watch it, but I'm just going to kind of recap here what they said. So Brandy and Tyler were kind of talking together at some points talking over each other. So that's what um, what, um, I'm going to do. So, they say, Michael went missing nearly, nearly a year later. And Tyler says, it was a very quick year and a long year at the same time. The same question remains, where is Michael Vaughn? It can't be a year. It can't be a year. Going through a day without him, Michael's parents, Brandy Neal and Tyler Neal, say is a struggle. I don't want to get out of bed every day. We try to keep going, try to get through every day, through the day they use hope that he's coming home. So this is kind of intermixed with the um, reporter as well. Let me kind of fast forward here to... um, He's... Not one of us will stop. Michael is coming home. Every day we have unfinished business. And I'll tell you, every day is an anniversary of the disappearance from Michael Vaughn. So they're quoting the press conference that we just talked about. Okay. So they quote some of the press conference. And so then they start to ask him about the specifics of the timeline. Tyler. The specifics of like what happened that night so this is what he says she and when he says she he's referring to buggy which is the little girl their youngest that they have who she's about three now she would have been about two when michael went missing he says she was sleeping so it took a minute to for me to rouse her and then i changed her diaper and ordered pizza probably took me 15 minutes and came back out and I went outside to smoke. And Monkey wasn't outside, so I figured he was inside with his brother. He wasn't inside and that's when panic kicked in. I came outside and I looked down the street and I hopped in the car and called Brandy and drove to the splash pad. And then all over the neighborhood, walking, running, driving, I couldn't tell you where. I mean, I didn't leave the neighborhood, but all up and down frantically. I called Brandy asking her to get home Immediately, I was scared, and she was the first person I thought to call. I needed her home as fast as I could because I panicked and was out of my mind. Panicked because he was—he has no idea where his best buddy Michael is. So that's the reporter speaking that Tyler's panicked because he has no idea where his best buddy Michael is. He's a wonderful little boy, and he doesn't deserve this. But whether this is is by a stranger or someone close to the family, they don't know. Police said there is a high probability of abduction, but say there's no absolutes when it comes to this case. There, um, then still no suspects. Fruitland Police Department have also confirmed during the investigation there are some people who have been uncooperative, which is confusing to Brandy and Tyler. So then... Brandy says, why would you not cooperate? Why? You see our family. You see our children that are heartbroken. All of us are heartbroken. Law enforcement say Michael's parents continue to cooperate fully, but we have not been able to clear the two because many parts of this case are, again, not absolute. And then Brandy says, I will say that law enforcement are a very big part of our lives continuously, And we will continue to work with them we have worked with them hundred percent and will continue to work with them 110 percent so when everything is cleared or when they're ready to take that step and clear us we'll be grateful but we know it takes time we believe they've done an amazing job and they continue to do an amazing job with michael's case this is brandy speaking capturing so much attention around the country And then, this reporter goes on to say, County police told KTVB they sometimes run into speculation and random theories thrown out by the public because these are often not credible tips. Chief J.D. Huff says it diverts attention away from finding Michael. Most of the theories I think are completely not grounded in reality for the most part when it comes to the lack of information released in the last year. And then this reporter goes on to say, I wouldn't, you know, that he said, J.D. Huff, the police chief, I wouldn't want to release anything that would jeopardize the case. And then Brandy says, there are many things the police do. They don't even tell them which are okay. In the beginning, we both wanted to know everything. And there are certain things that happened that changed our mind really fast. We continue to support law enforcement and their efforts, but we do not want to know everything now. Family and this community, we will not stop until Michael is brought home. To, his baby sister needs him, his big sister, his big brother, all of us. We need him and Monkey, we love you. And then, um, that's kind of where um, The interview part ends and the media, the reporter goes on to talk about like more things from the press conference and they're tying blue ribbons around town and stuff. But it's really interesting. I highly recommend you go watch the interview. It's on KTVB and it's called Missing Fruitland Boy's Family Refused to Give Up Hope One Year After His Disappearance. Um, Cause it's it's even different when you get to listen to it and actually watch it versus just me recapping it. So I highly recommend you go do that um, and um, watch it, listen to it, and I'm very curious what your thoughts are regarding it. But definitely, like what stands out to me is that it's interesting that one of the first things they say is oh we can't understand why someone will not be cooperating and as I mentioned before we pretty much know and if you've listened to the other podcast episodes you know who I'm referring to when you know when and who they are referring to J.D. Huff the police chief when they say some people are not cooperating yeah like there's clearly people not cooperating that have not been cooperating from the beginning and it's right in front of you Um, And so it's interesting. They seem so naive and, like, oblivious and ignorant. Like, why are people not cooperating in this investigation? And it's like, pot calling the kettle black much? Hmm, interesting. And then the timeline is interesting because initially Tyler had said, or Brandy had said, Oh, Tyler was, it was a blowout diaper from the little one. So that's why it took a little bit longer, because it was a blowout diaper. And that was the excuse of why it took so long. Then, in this, he says, oh, she was asleep, so I had to wake her up. Who wakes their child up to change a diaper? Also, who lets their child, like, take a nap at, like, 6.30 at night? That seems bizarre to me, because most kids that age go to bed... Maybe between like 7.30, 8.30 at the latest, maybe 8. So why would you let your child take a nap right before they're going to go to bed? That is, I mean, mean, I'm not a parent, but I have nannied and babysat a lot and worked with kids. And I know that you don't put a young child, a two-year-old, to bed an hour before they're supposed to go to bed. Like, for a nap. That's not something a normal parent would do. Um, I think it's also interesting that then he says he, he went out for a smoke. Like out into the garage. Which Brandy has said on multiple occasions that Tyler had stopped smoking a year prior to Michael going missing. So Tyler was not smoking. So that's contradictory. Um, It's certainly contradictory. And then... Like, from what we've known and what Brandy has told us is that, oh, well, he, Tyler had been inside the house, like, that afternoon, early evening, Michael was playing the um, video games, the Nintendo Switch, he was in the living room playing his video games, and then, like, Tyler had gone to do other things. And so if Tyler had gone out to smoke after changing the baby's diaper and then was like, crap, I don't know where Michael is. And like, goes... Like, wouldn't Michael be playing video games? That's what Brandy has said before, that right before Michael... Or right before Tyler went out to the garage, oh, Michael was playing video games. So then wouldn't he have just been playing video games? But then Tyler in this interview says, no, he went back inside and looked for him, and he wasn't there. And then he says he thought Michael might be outside and went to look for him, but he wasn't. Well, why would Michael be outside? If he was playing video games, why would Michael be be outside? So that's quite interesting, too. But we also know that from Brandy, it sounds like they had very laissez-faire parenting or lackadaisical parenting where they would let him kind of roam around the neighborhood on his own. People that have been interviewed in the community say, oh yeah, I saw that kid all the time. He'd be walking the streets, he'd walk to the park, he'd do this and that. Five years old. Five years old. Any parents out there listening, have you let your five-year-old just like wander the streets? Like, and I know Fruitland is a relatively small town. Still. Still. I just, I don't, I don't understand that. I don't. Um, So I guess in their regard, it's not that out of line for him to, oh, he might just be outside wandering because we kind of let him do that. But definitely bizarre. And I don't want to get into speculating too much because, and as Fruitland Police Department said, there's lots of possibilities. There's lots of theories for what could have happened There truly are, and I honestly think it's best to let the facts speak for themselves. And the facts tell us that there's been inconsistencies in the parents' story. There's been inconsistencies in what Brandy Neal has said, and we see that just here in this interview, inconsistencies of what she said before, oh, Tyler stopped smoking a year before Michael went missing, to then, oh... Then in the interview, Tyler saying he went out to the garage for a smoke. There, there's constant inconsistencies happening. And that's not speculation or theory, that's fact. This case, like, all cases have to be driven by facts. By true things that are known. And the constant contradiction of things and, and misinformation is astounding things constantly changing and oh no it was this oh no it was that and it's hard to take anything that is coming out of brandy or tyler's mouth as true fact because things have changed so many times the only things that we can say is true fact has come from law enforcement and that's a very small amount of things that's why we don't have much of a timeline right now law enforcement said they narrowed the window that he michael went missing between six forty and 7 p.m So we do know now that that is fact, but beyond that, we cannot say much else because we don't know much else. Law enforcement will not share anything else at this time, which I understand. And Brandy and Tyler, it's just hard to trust what they're saying because it's contradiction after contradiction after contradiction. Something's changing and then something else is changing and then it's changing again. And it's been that way since the beginning of this case. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating. And so that's why when law enforcement say there are people not cooperating in this case, it's not hard to put two and two together. It's really not. It's not. It's pretty easy to say, okay, we have these things constantly changing. And then they're saying people are not cooperating And so you can make your own theories, but I ask that everything be rooted in facts. And there's lots of accusations of, oh, people are accusing the parents or people are accusing this or that, or, and that happens in every case, whether it's a missing child or a criminal case, whatever, that happens in every case, accusations. That's part of every case. But what needs to be happening Is theories being rooted in facts? Looking at the facts and saying, okay, based on X, Y, and Z that we know to be confirmed by law enforcement or confirmation by phone calls or pictures or text messages, some kind of proof that validates this piece of information, saying, yes, this piece of information is true, and using that to drive theories. Because, yeah, if you're just making up a theory out of the thin air without anything to back it up, then it's truly a theory out of thin air. But if you are taking true facts that are coming from a reputable source and using that to build your theory, then that actually has some validity to it. And it might actually end up being what actually happened And that's what so many people are trying to do online, and so many people have done online, and they're getting accused from every angle. And even this news reporter from KTVB in Idaho, she tried to say that, which J.D. Huff explicitly said in the press conference, no tidbit of information is too small. It will be the smallest piece of information that brings this case to a close. And yet this reporter, tried to twist it and say, oh, there's people speculating that are causing so much harm in this case. And little do we know, we find out that this that this reporter, Alexandra, is her name, who works at KTVB, and yes, I'm calling her out. I'm calling her out here. But this reporter, she was at the press conference and didn't seem to get all the questions she wanted or all the answers she wanted, two questions. And so she followed J.D. Huff out after the press conference, followed him back into the police station and basically asked some off the record questions, which if you know anything about journalism, if you're going to share something publicly, it needs to be on the record. You don't go follow a police chief afterwards, ask him some additional follow-up questions. She put this stuff out on Twitter publicly minutes after it happened and was calling it news and facts. And we know that that is not honest journalism. And so I'm calling her out on this. And we also know that, which I don't know if I've brought up in other podcast episodes, but there's a whole team of people being controlled by brandy and i say controlled because that's really what it seems like being controlled by brandy pushing this ever changing narrative from brandy and they're doing kind of whatever brandy says whatever brandy wants they're doing and one of these people so-called people is has deemed herself as the like the media manager media captain, if that's what you want to call it, LaWanda. And she has been kind of the rep for the family, speaking for Brandy, to get media on this case. And yet, little do we know that LaWanda had some specific questions for this KTVB reporter that she wanted asked And didn't get it asked in the press conference. So, highly encourage this KTVB reporter, Alexandra, to go follow J.D. Huff to get these answers to questions that she wanted. Or she didn't like the answers she got and wanted different answers. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Again. Again. People that are actually making theories that are grounded in true facts. True facts that can be vetted or are vetted, have been vetted by phone calls, text messages, videos, photos, police information. That is helping the case. That is what investigating is. And... No, you don't need a law enforcement, you don't need to work in law enforcement or have a specific degree to be able to do that. If you're a public citizen and you want to just put together pieces of information and start tying things together, that's your right to do so. And you do have an obligation that if you come across some information that could be pertinent to the case to share it with law enforcement, but you can do that. You can gather your own information online, tie things together. That is perfectly okay and legal. And there is nothing to stop you or anybody else from doing it. And the accusations from people saying, oh, you're breaking the law. You need to stop. This is no, no, it's not breaking the law. It's, It's not. It is not breaking the law digging for information and as police have said there is no tidbit of information too small it will be the smallest tidbit that ends up breaking this case open and we've seen that with so many other cases and the role that people that have just been digging for information online and then they find this nugget they turn it over to police and suddenly there's more movement and things happen that's how that's how this all works so if you're out there and you're just gonna sit behind a keyboard and accuse people of breaking the law and hindering the case just stop just stop and ask yourself what am i doing for the case am i just sitting here Accusing people, pointing fingers? Or am I actually doing anything for this case to help find this missing six-year-old boy that's been missing almost a year? And I know that all of you listening out here to this podcast episode, you're lovely human beings for taking the time to listen to this podcast episode, to be invested in this case, even if it just means listening to this podcast episode and sharing his missing person poster. That matters, and that's important. And I'm just sick and tired of all these other people that are, tr- are trying to hinder the case. They're the ones that are truly trying to hinder the case. Not the people that are actually digging through factual information, but the people that are just pointing fingers and yelling at others and calling people out left and right. Those are the people truly hindering the case. And it also seems to be that those are the people that are so close to the family and they can't seem to take a step back and assess the situation from a different lens, assess the case from a different lens and see, oh, maybe I'm too close to the family. Maybe if I take a step back, I can get a different view and see it a little differently. With that, I'm going to end this podcast episode. It has been far longer than I wanted it to be so I'm going to wrap it up here. but I'm gonna remind you I'm posting the photo of the person of interest or this they they said he was not a suspect but the person they're trying to identify I'm posting that photo on my social media at mys headlines pod on Instagram and mys headlines on Twitter. I'm also um, going to be sharing this podcast episode on those platforms and I'll be putting out a link to both the press conference from the Fruitland Police Department and the KTVB news um, media interview. So you can watch that. There's probably going to be more news interviews coming up, so I'll be curious to see how similar they are to this one that they did or different and I'll probably make some podcast episodes when those come out but until then thank you so much for listening thank you for being invested in this case for listening all the way through this podcast episode and truly caring because all I care about here is Michael Michael Vaughn who has been missing a year that's all I care about I don't care about anybody else in this case I just care about finding this innocent little boy who deserves so much more. Again, check my social media platforms for all of the stuff I discussed today. And as always, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another podcast episode.